Can you afford to give every programmer who works for you his own office? This is your host, Greg Gallant. Welcome back to Venture Voice. Today, I have Joel Spolsky on the show. I had Joel on my show back in November 2005, soon after I'd started, talking about his company, Fog Creek Software, which at the time makes a very popular bug tracking software. That software is still grown, but they've also launched three other ventures. We talk about all of them on the show today. It was very cool catching up with Joel again. I got to go see him in his new office. It's about three, four times the size of his old office. Now it's in lower Manhattan. And it felt like being in a small version of Google's office, even nicer. Every programmer has their own office. They have a very large kind of common kitchen area. I was there for lunch. Felt, again, just like being at Google, free lunch, kind of everyone gets together. So kind of a very, you know, employee-driven process of building software as opposed to most people where they kind of come up with this big burning idea and then kind of figure out what employees they need to bring it together. So it's really good to hear Joel's perspective. Hope you enjoy the show. I'd like to thank our new partner, FreshBooks, for sponsoring this episode. FreshBooks is an easy-to-use online invoicing service that saves you time, gets you paid faster, and makes you look Fortune 500 professional. To learn more, sign up. Go to FreshBooks.com, and for a limited time, enter the code VENTURE to save $20 on your paid subscription, or go click their link from our website. I use FreshBooks to invoice sponsors, and it leaves me with more time to make this show for you. Joel, welcome to Venture Voice. Thanks for having me on. So, Joel, it's good to have you back. We had you on November 2005. Sure, nothing's changed at all in your business since then, but just in case, thought it'd be fun to do this follow-up. Yeah, I, I, you know, uh, I think a lot of things have changed. I just can't remember quite what. <laughs> it's all been such a blur. <laughs> so, so let's just recap on your company. You started it in 2000, mm-hmm. uh, if I remember right, with kind of the idea that you could just kind of easily get some consulting money and figure out what to do with it. Um, yeah, I mean, that was the original vision was making a great software development company, a great place for software developers to work and creating a, an institution that was able to, um, basically convert, um, regular plain old dollar bills into software, into functioning software, um, through, through our company. Um, that was, that seemed to be the, the, the thing that people were looking for, the ability to do, is convert those dollar bills into software. And we wanted to build a factory that could do that really, really well. And um, that's something we focused on from the beginning. Um, and you're right. Like, like, like you said, when we started in the early days, we used um, – we got a couple of consulting gigs um, to pay the bills and to get us started. Uh, that market disappeared very quickly uh, with the, dot, the first dot-com crash um, in the year 2000, late, two, late 2000, early 2001. And um, we were forced to become a software company a little earlier than, than I would have expected um, with our Fogbugs product. Yeah, and so if I remember right, it, you pretty much bootstrapped it. You said you never had to put in more than 50K of your own money. Right. And then your your kind of big vision was to build a content management system, and that never worked. And you got stuck doing bug tracking software, which uh, worked which out work. better than expected. Yeah. Uh, con- a content management system is some – you know, there's a certain type of project that is very appealing – to a to a software developer, like content management system is one of those things that you describe to a software developer, and they think, okay, I can do that. There's nothing hard there, <laughs> hmm. and uh, and to some some extent that's its strength, but it's also its weakness because it means that everybody just tries to build their own rather than using the one that's out there um, because it seems so easy. Content management system also wasn't really a category that um, existed hmm. uh, that 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 the regular world knew about. Uh, you know, I think maybe. Large magazines and newspapers knew about the category, um, but sort of the low-end home users didn't. And we were really targeting the home users uh, with our content management system. And, of course, then blogging happened because blogging didn't even exist when we started. Uh, And once blogging happened, the uh, entire category of personal content management was taken over by the blog tools, and that market never really existed. But that's okay. I think uh, it's fairly typical for a company to start out with one idea of what their product will be and wind up actually building something very, very different that actually meets a, meets, meets a need in the marketplace. So kind of snapshot of 2005 when we did the last interview, my sense was a uh, profitable company, kind of fairly, if you can call software old-fashioned, kind of a fairly 
old-fashioned software model where you ship software, people buy it, buy the license, <laughs> just kind of like Microsoft Office would. Yeah, yeah, that's the way Fogbugs worked. Uh, that's the way CityDesk worked, although CityDesk was already pretty rapidly fading. Um, and uh, um, what we had just launched, I think, in November '05 was Copilot, which is a remote uh, tech support tool, uh, very easy to use way to get onto somebody else's computer over the internet, no matter what kind of weird firewalls you have. Um, secure 128-bit. Um, as of today, it works on Windows, you know, Vista, and Mac, um, and lets you kind of remote connect to, to somebody's computer and help them with their computer problems. Uh, and we had launched the very first version of that, uh, built by a team of summer interns, actually, uh, in the summer of uh, 2005. And there have been several, several new versions of that and several improvements to Copilot since then. Yeah, so tell me about Copilot. Like, you built it with the interns, you launch it. What was it like that first month after launch? Um, it was, uh, uh, you know, we could see that it was a rapidly growing business. Um, it was doing pretty well. Um, and like, how many sales was it that made it, you know, in that first month where you kind of gauge, like, okay, this is something to double down on? Well, we couldn't really, uh, I, I can't really remember. I think it was like $1,000, but we weren't charging very much for it either. Um, but, you know, we could see that it had some traction and it was growing. Uh, and we were getting an enormous number of people that wanted to use it regularly. And unfortunately, the system that we had was if you want to use it regularly, then just go back to the site and put in your credit card every time. <laughs> you, you, you purchased a one-use pass. Uh, we really, you know, our, our original idea and the very first product that we wanted to release was for the, I just need to help one person with their computer once. I don't want to sign up for an account. I don't want to sign up for an annual subscription. I'm not going to give you my credit card that you can bill monthly. And so on and so forth. And so that, so we had that model, and we, you could pay with PayPal or with a credit card. And I think originally it was $10 a day, and I think now it's only $5 a day. And you would be able to um, spend up to 24 hours accessing one other computer, um, fixing someone's problems. Um, very rapidly, we, we got started getting tons and tons and tons of requests of people that wanted to use it professionally to provide tech support to their customers usually. And uh, the, you know, the product was right, the price was good, and so forth. Um, but they just could not bear to type in the credit card number every time. So the first thing we did right away, like we was probably already in progress when we last talked, was the uh, subscription model for Copilot. So you could actually subscribe if you wanted to, and we had different subscription plans. Um, and that was a much, much bigger success than the day passes. And the day pass business, you know, selling you for $5 remote access, has pretty much held constant in sales since we launched it. Uh, while the subscriber model is signing up new subscribers all the time, and so our, our monthly sales go up every every month. Hmm. And that's kind of an interesting way. It seems when I looked at your site, it looks like you really have two products now that you focus on. It's the um, the Frog Bugs and Copilot. Fog bu yeah, Frog Bugs is Frog Bugs is probably our number one product. Copilot, I don't know. We love all our products equally, but uh, but <laughs> but Frog Bugs is the cash cow. Um, um, Copilot is. The second, the third one is sort of invisible. It's the uh, job listing service on the Jolin hmm. software site, and um, uh, the fourth one is sort of a, a joint venture that's only a fifty percent Fog Creek production, uh, and that's um, Stack Overflow. Hmm. So I want to get into both those. First, I think it's pretty interesting with Copilot that it was uh, the way you came up with it that it was something that you came up with for an intern project. Mm -hmm. You know, reflecting on that, do you think you would have done it had it not been for the intern project? And, you know, have you sought to kind of repeat that and launch new products every summer with interns? Um, we almost, we sort of tried to, but we've been sort of half-hearted about it. And um, so we haven't really successfully uh, launched a new product with interns since then. Um, although we will do that again this summer, and this time we're not going to be half-hearted about it, and we know how we're going to do it. Um, but... Uh, the, 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 there's sort of a couple of things here. One is if you try to launch a product with interns, you better have a product that you can build in four weeks mm -hmm. um, because the other six weeks of their internship, they're going to have to spend debugging and you know, getting beta testers and finding all the bugs and actually getting it from um, – you know, if, if you're spending about three to four weeks writing new code, that's about the right amount of code for a summer internship, and you can spend the rest of the summer uh, getting it uh, polished and you know, usable by, by customers. Yeah. So it's it's there's a fairly limited number of <laughs> uh, opportunities to find new products that could be launched with that little tiny amount of work, um, no matter how much preparation you, you do in advance. And um, that's sort of why we launched Copilot because uh, you know originally the idea was it would just be a script that configured VNC for you. Um, you know, the VNC the main the main core of the protocol already exists, and we just 
the, the, the whole problem with VNC is that the configuration is unnecessarily difficult. And um, by giving you a reflector to get around the, uh, uh, which is the service that we have to host to get around firewalls, uh, and um, by basically doing the configuration for you, um, both of those things were things we thought could be accomplished in a very short amount of time. So, uh, so there's, there's a limited number of new products that you're really going to successfully launch um, with summer interns. You really only get 10 weeks. Because mm. I remember at the time it seemed like your philosophy was more to, to kind of launch a bunch more project products. products. So, so kind of coming um, to now, like what's your, what's your take on that? I don't know if I would say that's our philosophy because if you ask me, should, you, should a company have a lot of products or one product, there's a lot of benefit to just being very, very focused maniacally and, you know, like like a laser on one particular mm. marketplace. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, other things do come up. And, you know, my general rule of thumb is when there's something that I need and I'm looking for it in the market and I spend a lot of time looking for it, like months or years, and I'm really never finding anything adequate and I'm evaluating all the products that are out there and they all really suck in a way that they don't need to suck, mm. um, and I, I know that I could do better, um, That that's when I'll launch a product. And that's basically been... Um, the rule for uh, for Copilot uh, and for Stack Overflow and um, the, uh, the 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 opportunity, you know, when when I see, oh my God, this is obviously bad. The products that are out there are obviously bad. It's obviously easier, to, possible to do better. There's obviously a market opportunity here because I am trying to spend money on solving this particular problem. And 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 no matter how much money I spend, I keep getting bad products that don't solve this problem. Uh, that, that's when you know, if you can find an instance of that, that's when you know you have an awesome market opportunity. And um, that's kind of one reason why it's good to be in business, even if you're, um, even if it's not the business you ultimately want to be in, just the very act of being in business doing anything allows you to uncover untapped and un, unmet needs, unmet needs in the marketplace because, you know, you have a problem doing such and such and you realize, you know, there's just no good solution to that. Um, we almost did a product. We, we, we didn't do it in the end, but we almost did a backup product just because I kept trying to figure out how to back up the whole company, every hard drive in the company, onto a tape or something in some reliable way that could be automated and reliable and easy to comprehend. And the products on the market are terrible. Oh, my God, they're awful. They're all terrible. You can mm. get these home products like Mosey, and it's, sure, it's awesome. You push one button. That's awesome. But try to back up an office with 25 people, 50 PCs, and 12 servers. Uh, and all the products that are out there Basically, assume you're going to have a full-time backup administrator who has taken a course at Veritas for a, for a, for a year learning how to operate mm -hmm. their ridiculously difficult to operate software, and uh, it comes with a 10,000-page manual and is impossible to comprehend, and still leaves you unable to restore. These are only backup products; they're mm -hmm. not restore products. So, um, you know, stuff like that that I noticed, and we actually um, uh, went pretty far along trying to figure out how to make a backup product, and then decided that. Um, you know, we just didn't have the resources to do to do it the, the right way. But um, uh, just being in business allows you to see these opportunities, these great business opportunities. That's still a great business opportunity, by the way, small small corporate. So being in business or listening to a podcast. Yeah, I mean, you can <laughs> you can take my word for it, or but the, but nobody will. <laughs> there's something there's something about these particular marketplaces that that, that keeps people from going into them. Uh, uh, or maybe not. Maybe people do mm -hmm. enter, but they just don't do it right. So I want to get into the, your other products, but just to kind of finish mm -hmm. the Copilot story, what what kind of scale is it at now? Like how many user, how many subscribers does it have? Uh, well, we don't actually reveal any of the numbers, but it has been kind of growing uh, really, really steadily ever since then, and it's certainly always paid for itself. Um, we had the four summer interns there that summer working on it. Two of them came back full time uh, to work on it, and we added a tester to their team, and we added a, a program manager to their team, and. Um, it's uh, um, definitely a, a, a nice um, a side business. It's not. It's not like it's not the next Google, um, but mm. it uh, it definitely is a business that grows steadily, and we've been you know tweaking it and making it better as time goes on. Hmm. And have you uh, done any uh, marketing for it, or is it all just word of mouth? Uh, yeah, we don't do marketing. I don't. Or I don't know. Maybe does this count as marketing? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're not paying for it, so I guess not. We don't take out advertisements and trade publications. Do they still have trade publications? We don't go to trade shows and open a booth. Mm. Um, do you buy AdWords or do no. any online marketing? No. We've experimented with AdWords and never gotten anywhere. We've never had anything close to the kind of return on investment that would make it worthwhile. With Copilot in particular, I think we got something like a 5% ROI using AdWords 
or something. I mean, it was mm. just ridiculous. I mean, we spent a whole summer and a lot of money um, trying um, trying to figure out if that would work, and just wasn't even close. There, there are certain categories of things for which it works, and certain categories of things for uh, which it's a waste of time. Mm. So now, getting back to the core product, fog, frog bugs. Which, fog bugs. Fog bugs. Fog bugs. Fog bugs, yeah. which is yeah. a uh, bug tracking system kind of project management system mm-hmm. for people to uh, coordinate on projects. Yep. At the time, it was, uh, as you were saying, you know, kind of you sell the license, somebody downloads it, sets it up on their server, right? And, and which kind of runs contrary to the trend that has been very powerful with Salesforce and countless other companies of going to software as a service where people just pay for the license. Right. How do you, you know, why didn't you start that way? And then I know that you shifted to that model. What was behind the change? Well, we always uh, wanted to uh, have both options. And the reason either you run it on your own server or we'll host it for you on our servers. Um, because different customers have different needs. Some, there, are, there is an enormous category of customers that simply would not put their project management data with all their important ship dates and all their proprietary information and lists of what bugs are in their products uh, on somebody else's server, not inside. They're just, they're, there are a lot of large institutions, um, you know, large companies, governmental institutions and stuff like that that are just constitutionally incapable of ever imagining uh, doing that, and they never will. Uh, and they never would, and they won't in the future either. So um, there's, there's like those whole categories uh, of customers that just would absolutely refuse to use um, uh, an on-demand type service or a hosted service. On the other hand, there are also categories of people that don't even have their own servers that really appreciate the benefit, and those are usually the, the smaller customers. They're actually usually the, the one, two, three, seven-person mm. shops um, that, are, uh, that are perfectly happy. Uh, maybe it's because it's the newer companies and it's the startups that are perfectly comfortable with the idea of somebody else um, hosting and operating all their uh, all their um, bug tracking and project management data. Uh, so we knew we always wanted to do both, but I have a kind of a very high standard of quality for a product that we release, and did not want to do a hosted product until I was confident that we could we could host it reliably, and uh, did not want to be the one that finds out Saturday morning at 2 a.m. when I'm on vacation in Hawaii that the main SQL database where we're hosting a lot of customers' data um, is completely fried, and I don't know where the backups are. They're probably on a tape somewhere, and I have to get to the data center and wherever the data center is and somehow get a new server and somehow restore it. I just didn't want that kind of situation. So I wanted to know that we had no single point of failure that couldn't be replaced you know, in a matter of minutes remotely. It's like by typing command lines, <laughs> get another server online. I wanted to know that we had a professional system administrator because I didn't know how to do that myself. Um, I wanted to know that um, we had uh, good backup plans for every kind of contingency. We have a data center here in New York, um, but we wanted to have a contingency in case the New York data center goes down, which has ha- happened at 9-11. A lot of data centers in the mm. this part of the island um, were inaccessible. Some of them stayed up, but a lot of them were down. And so um, we wanted to make sure that we had a, a contingency plan even for that, even if it took 15 or 20 minutes or, or even 24 hours if your whole data center burns to the ground. But we had to have a plan that, that we could mm-hmm. tell people about before we start taking their money and holding their mission-critical data. Because the data that you put in fog bugs, if you l- lose access to it, everybody stops working because they don't know what to do next. So what do you think about all these companies that launch with software as a service and you know they're kind of doing it all on the $100 a month hosting account? Um, you know, it's it's it, it's fine for like a cute bookmark, bookmark service, um, but as the Magnolia bookmark service learned, then you lose your database and you don't have a backup, and you're completely out of business, mm. and you just close down and go home. And so uh, the, there there were there are, I think Magnolia was just one example. I think there was another example of somebody actually, fairly recently, like basically losing all the. Oh, I know there was a, there was a blogging service. I can't remember the name of it. Like a. Mm live journal kind of clone um, that also suddenly woke up one morning, didn't have a backup, lost everything, closed down. Had to tell, you know, <laughs> however many customers they had who had been developing data that their data was now uh, irretrievably gone. And, you know, the model I hear for software is, and unfortunately these, these companies that are doing this scrappy little, you know, I'm just running it on a shared host for $100, um, they're doing the rest of us a big disservice, right? Because I'm running it in two different data centers, one in New York, one in Los Angeles, so I have redundancy. I'm shipping, mm. I'm shipping things across country, left and right, so that I have 
a backup on the other coast in case you go down. I have um, the two best system administrators in the world working for me. Um, we have an awesome system. It's got all kinds of redundancy built into it, like just a whole rack of very, very high-quality Dell servers that are um, maintained very, very, very well or operated very, very well. And we probably run fog bugs a lot better than our customers can. And so you're probably better off paying us to do it than doing it yourself. You'll probably have more reliability, more uptime, better backups, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth, and better you know, data recovery. On the other hand, that is not necessarily true of all software as a service providers. A lot of the software as a service providers are just a guy in a room that's got something up and running for $30 a month. And, uh, you know, it, it often takes them a while to get to the point of being, you know, really, really professional about it. So it all depends on the, on the criticalness. Obviously, uh, a company like Salesforce, you can trust them to do a good job hosting. Um, but uh, everybody else, it's, it's real hard to tell. Hmm. Well, so tell me about that moment for you. So you always had it planned ever since, um, you know. Oh, yes, yeah, since the beginning of time, I knew that we yeah. would have some. But as that's always a moment where you're like, well. okay, now now I'm going to go do it. Yeah, well, and it kept and it got pushed off a little bit. Basically, at first we said, you know, we just need $500 a month because be, we have to be in a data center. Uh, we can't be, you know, we have to have a dedicated server in a data center. And then I thought, oh, God, we got to have a backup date server and stuff like that. It's a little bit more than 500 And then I got to the point where I said, you know, we have to have a system administrator because I can't. Um, uh, I, I can't do this myself. I'm not. I'm not that good at it. I can. I can get the mm. company up and running. I can get our web ser server up and running, but I'm not really going to set up a, a, a data center correctly. And I'm not going to be able to keep on top of all the things that can go wrong and know what viruses to be looking for and mm. you know know what patches to apply when and how to apply them. And so. Uh, um, you know, because that's a full-time job, no matter what. And so, uh, so we hired a system administrator, and then finally we had the money to do it. We had the, we had the one rack in New York, and we got another rack in LA, and we got the, we had a system administrator, and we hired a second system administrator. So there's a there's backup there, and um, it was just a matter of because we're a bootstrap company, we had to reach a certain critical mass before we felt that we could host fog bugs at the level of quality that uh, our customers expect. Hmm. So what are you doing if you, what would you do if you know? Things were different, and you were just leaving your job today. You saw this hole in the market for bug tracking. Would you, you know, would you start with a five-person team? Would you start um, a software as a service? How, how do you approach it? You know, going from nothing if you are out there today with fifty grand in your pocket. You have to decide between uh, the, the, the which type of market you want to go into and what kind of company you want to build. Uh, Fog Creek, the, the company Fog Creek. You know, our goal was to make a sustainable company where we could work until the end of our careers. Uh, that would be an awesome place to work with uh, the, the great programs we want to work at, with you know be ridiculously beautiful offices where everybody's treated really well and has the latest uh, you know computer equipment on their desk and mm. um, good pay and stuff like that. And all that kind of stuff was um, was the goal for us. And um, if, if you've noticed, there are other bug tracking products on the market. In <laughs> fact, someone, even when we launched, on the, on the day that we launched, somebody had made a web page somewhere that was like, a list of bug trackers you can get. And it was just pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of little projects that people had done. Everything from little projects to very high-end expensive tools that you can buy for $549 a seat. And uh, um, so the the, uh, the market uh, existed, and there was no way we were going to you know enter it and immediately take take over. And so in in that kind of model, we knew it was going to be a long, steady progression. Our product would get better and better, and more and more cu customers would prefer our product. Eventually, we would capture customers and hopefully never lose them. And um, we could sort of bootstrap that way as long as the as long as the equation resulted in growth, right? As long as mm. we're selling more every month, a little bit more every month. And so we can hire a few more people every once in a while, and uh, we can continue to uh, um, grow it out that way. And that was our model. That was the bootstrap model. And um, that's what we chose to do. You might find another marketplace that behaves a little bit differently. That's what I call – actually, I call it a Ben & Jerry's business because the Ben & Jerry's ice cream company started exactly that way, right? There already was ice cream. They, they were doing – okay, it was premium ice cream, but there was already premium ice cream too. There was Haagen-Dazs at the time, and there was all kinds of stuff. But uh, – but uh, they just wanted to start a little ice cream stand, and they wanted to grow it, and they grew it very, very, very gently and very, very slowly. And um, that's the Ben and Jerry's model. And uh, the other model, which I've always called the Amazon model, is you suddenly realize, oh my God, there's going to be some website that people go to when they want to buy something, anything. <laughs> and uh, uh, we can start with books, but we really have to sell everything because if we start with books, then other people will be selling the other things, and that would suck because then they'd be getting profit that we could have. And uh, that's a land grab business. It's this business where it's like you have to get big as fast as possible because once you 
grab a toehold, it's going to be very, very hard for somebody to displace you. Or think of eBay with, uh, with uh, auctions. Even though eBay has become horribly dysfunctional, where half of it isn't even auctions anymore. It's buy, buy now buttons. And half of the auctions, there's so many categories on eBay, like laptops, where you just cannot sell a laptop mm. or buy a laptop because it's so rife with fraud. Um, that eBay is actually starting to sort of collapse a little bit. And yet nobody can b- break into the auction marketplace because uh, there's, there's so, so, such strong network effects for eBay in that business. And if you're in a, in a business with network effects, you probably want to get, get big fast. And that means you want to get outside investments and venture capital and so forth so that you can grow quickly. Uh, and uh, you also have to take a lot of risks, which means that you probably only have a one in 10 chance of succeeding. But fortunately, most entrepreneurs are good at ignoring that other nine, nine out of 10. What was the question? So, so it was about uh, if you were starting today, yeah. would, you do, would you launch software as a service if you wanted to go after the same market? Yes, and didn't have the resources of that you did have that yes. you were operating. Yes, there are a lot of better. There, it's a lot easier to start uh, with software as a service nowadays. You could do something like use, uh, um, uh, well, you could use the Amazon EC2 type services. Um, you could use um, various other cloud services. You could even just use Rackspace and get some machines set up for you pretty quickly. Uh, and you can generally do that at lower qu- cost and with higher quality than you could when we were starting. And uh, um, I don't think I would bother. Uh, with licensed software in in most new product hmm. categories. So tell me what what surprises did you have? Like what you what did you expect when you moved to the software as a service model? And did it go as planned, or was there a lot to learn a lot along the way? Um, it's weird. It seemed to go almost exactly as expected. Uh, we had sort of kind of grand ambitions for how much we'd be making and how fa- <laughs> fast it would be growing, and I think we were a little bit. Um, I think we were a little bit, uh, well, we just, we, you know, maybe it's because we just don't try to, uh, we don't try to predict the future. Like I don't, if I'm about to launch a new product, I don't say to myself, oh, this is probably going to make $30,000 a month because I don't really have any way of knowing that. And so I don't even try to say that. I just say, let's launch it. Let's see what we get. Maybe we'll get $20 a month. Maybe we'll get 90000 But But do you make that spreadsheet? Do you have the spreadsheet nope. of the projections or did anything like that? Did not make like projections. Just, just did not make projections. What I will do is I'll launch it, and after two months, I'll in the first two months, I'll like desperately look at the sign-up data and the new. You know, I mean, every single day I'll be looking at the data and trying to project it out. Um, once I have any kind of data whatsoever, so I remember definitely in the first two months of Fogwugs on Demand, trying to figure out what kind of revenue it would give us because there was actually we had to kind of there was this weird thing with Fogwugs on Demand. Our old lease in the old space where you interviewed me last time was 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 running out. We knew we had to move. We needed a much bigger space. The cost of office space had gone up. And we wanted a higher quality office space in a better neighborhood. So we were looking at going from $10,000 a month to $50,000 a month in office expenses and, and needing you know, some huge amount of money, like it turned out to be half a million dollars, to actually do construction and do the move. And so uh, in order to make the move happen, the lease was running out. And we were just like literally running out of time and having to make a decision on, on how to renew this lease. And um, Fogbugs on Demand, I think, had just launched – and so we were trying to project the growth rate of Fogbugs on Demand and whether that would support the new, higher, more expensive office space. And so I just remember every single day going in there and looking at the number of signups and trying mm. to calculate out that growth rate. And we actually basically realized that by the time we actually had to sign the lease on the new place, or by the time we'd be moving into the new place, Fogbugs on Demand would have grown by $40,000 a month, which would cover the cost of the new place. So that gave us the confidence to go ahead and sign that lease. But there was a time where we were trying to make a particular decision about the lease, which happened to depend on a particular piece of data, which is how many people are going to opt for Fogbugs on Demand and how fast will that business grow. And so we tried to project data in that one particular instance. But otherwise, normally, I don't really bother with those kind of projections or anything like that. Hmm. So then as you were getting into this on-demand world, I, I imagine you make more per user on the on-demand. How, how do those economics work? Yeah, we make more per user on the on-demand because it's a – first of all, it's a recurring it's, – it's recurring. You know, the maintenance con- there's a maintenance contract on the other one, but it's, it's, it's more recurring. And basically we're charging you for the hosting. So uh, we, would, we would obviously prefer people to be on on-demand, hmm. all being equal. Which is uh, better for cash flow? Uh, I kind of like the on-demand because you get guaranteed monthly rev- – not guaranteed monthly revenue, but, you know, the – the the, the um, even if, with the license, you get all the money up front, but then you have to – Oh, yeah. No, I don't even care about that. Um, some people might, um, but if you have an on-demand subscriber, you should be able to 
um, especially if you have a uh, if you sign if you if you sign up for contracts, which we don't do. But if you have an on-demand subscriber that's going to give you in 12 months what otherwise you would have gotten from the licensed user all up front, you should be able to go to a factor or a bank and get that money advanced to you if you really need it at some outlandish interest rate. But you yeah, could yeah. theoretically get it if you really needed it. Uh, but uh, but we didn't need it, so that wasn't really an issue. But whereas with the on demand, the, the, you know, one thing we noticed, for example, is there was just a recession kind of thing going on here. Mm. I don't know if the news covered this, <laughs> but there was some some slight. Anyway, <laughs> we're in a recession right now, apparently, <laughs> uh, and it hasn't gotten covered too much in the in the media, but um, it's there. And um, you know what we're noticing is that that tends to reduce new customers, but customers who already have existing relationships will continue to pay their monthly bills. In other words, once they've signed up for that thing, they'll keep writing that check every month because um, they're signed up. They're not making a new decision. So how's it going now with having to maintain both? So now you were saying if you were going to do it anew, you wouldn't have a licensed version. Pro- but now, yeah. But what's it like right now? Is it is it a big pain? Is yeah. it kind of like a monkey on your back? It's a big pain. It's a monkey on your back, but we have to. Two-thirds of our new customers opt for the licensed version. Wow. One-third of our new customers opt for the on-demand version. That's surprising. Um, given you know how so many businesses have shifted to software and a service, you know when I look at the demographics, like I said, the big businesses they'll just run; they want to run it on their own server, and that's just what they'll do. And uh, it's I, I know that there everybody talks about Salesforce.com, but you know one thing that I've learned over time is if everybody uses the same example when they try to tell you something <laughs> as a trend or a story or whatever, they keep giving you that same exact example that's usually a sign that that's the only example. <laughs> so I think actually Salesforce is a little bit of an outlier with enterprise software. I do think that's the way we're going. And uh, and I, I personally would not, as a startup, would not bother building something to be installed uh, locally anymore. And it is certainly possible that no company will run their own data centers at some point in the future. Uh, that may be pretty far away. Um, but right now what I'm seeing is uh, almost every large company already has Servers, they're happy to buy software and throw it on there and run it themselves. Well, what percent of your of these customers signing up would you say are businesses over with over 100 employees or over, uh, or you know I some never, some I kind never, of large I business? I don't I don't really know how to I don't, I don't know how to break it down that way. Hmm. I, I do know definitely that the average size of a or, or uh, let's not say the average. Let's say that a typical sale of Fogbug's licensed version would be for 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 seats. And a typical Fogbug's on-demand customer would be paying for three, six, nine seats. Yeah, so this is a very different category than like a, mm-hmm. what 37 Signals targets or oh, yeah, some of absolutely. the other yeah, yeah, yeah. on-demand uh, collaboration tools. Right, right. That's interesting. So, so what do you think about now with that product when you – try to grow it, are there any kind of like big plans or are you always just thinking about incremental improvements? Uh, there's still a lot of incremental improvements that are possible. Uh, we're about to launch uh, a beta of Fogbook 7 and the beta of Fogbook 7 does a pretty darn good job of addressing just about every issue we're now hearing in the sales cycle. So but this has been the case with the previous six versions of Fogbooks as well, which is you're selling something and then people say, does it do X? And you say yes, and they say, does it do Y? And you say yes, and they say, does it do W? And you say no, and they say, okay, never mind, goodbye. And there's always that one thing that they ask you in that order. Mm. And then in Fogbooks 1, it was this thing. And with Fogbooks 2, it was that thing. With Fogbooks 3, it was the other thing. Um, but with Fogbooks 7, is definitely going to address all the issues that we hear about in the Fogbooks 6 sales cycle. So that'll be awesome. Uh, it'll pretty much do everything. Slice mm. bread. Um, and, <laughs> and so uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna continue that. And, and the other thing is right before you ship – your N plus one version, when you have a version like this, which we do coming up that pretty much does everything for everybody and addresses all issues. See, now I'm exaggerating <laughs> deliberately because I don't want our listeners who may also be Fogbugs customers to get it. <laughs> doesn't do anything. Don't get your hopes up. Uh, but uh, when you look at um, um, from, from, from our side of the, of the pond, of, from 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 this side of shipping Fogbook Seven, it sure like, looks like when we do ship Fogbook Seven, we're going to be done. Like that's it. We can just retire mm. now. Close and, the patent office. That's right. <laughs> no, no. I mean, but we can, we're, <laughs> we're done. Our product does everything, uh, which is obviously not true, um, especially at the rate we're cutting features in order to ship on time. But uh, uh, it, it 
it, it looks that way. It looks like we're kind of addressing everything. What will happen is that the customers that evaluate Fogbug 7 will get that much further in their evalu- list of evaluation criteria. Mm-hmm. And some of them will then be done and will buy it. And some of them will have other things that we haven't even thought to ask that they'll come up with that they'll suddenly mm-hmm. want Fogbugs to be able to do. And so we'll work on some of those as well. So does it get harder with each version, like, or easier, you know, as your staff grows and, like, the people who built the original one may have left or been here for longer? Like, how does that Yeah, well, nobody's left. Change. Uh, we don't have a lot of turnover here. The, um, the, uh, uh, I, I think it gets easier. We have more people working on it. They're all very, very professional and very skilled. We've actually, right now, we're at a point where I don't think anybody in the Fogbugs team has been here for less than a year. Hmm. Um, is that right? Uh, no, I'm, I know I'm going to get it wrong. But we actually have a relatively senior uh, team working on Fogbugs right now. We don't have a lot of newbies floating around on the team not knowing what's going on. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it, it, it goes pretty easy. I think that we um, – um, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about ship dates officially, but um, we, have a, we had a particular ship date in mind for Fogbug 7 that we decided on – who, like a year ago, more than a year ago, like a, like a really long time ago. Um, well, basically, we, we, we had this idea to do uh, – uh, it's too, too many details. I don't want to bore the users. We're going to ship on time um, based on a date that we picked about a year ago, hmm. and that's pretty good. Um, that's, in fact, I think we'll probably ship about a month and a half early from that date. How much do you worry about making your own deadlines? Like, do you do you get really worried and annoyed when you have to say, okay, that deadline's going to be pushed off three months? Do you say, hey, we're rolling with the punches. We don't want to predict the future. We don't really make deadlines. What we do is we try to estimate when something is going to happen, and that's not really a deadline. That's just an estimate of when something's going to happen. Um, uh, like you heard me today give the team a quote-unquote deadline. Um, but that's that's really not a, a – you know, we, we, we sort of decided – um, last Friday and announced today that the Fogbugs beta will go out to the first beta customers on a certain date, and a very particular date. And to me, that's not like hurry up and get it done by that date, although it may sort of sound that mm-hmm. way and come across that way. What it's really saying is, look, we could, we could be playing with this thing. We could be fiddling with this thing for the next six years, polishing the little corners. But we can't. At some point, we just have to say, all right, that's what goes to the customers. And so we pick that date. Uh, and that'll, you know, some people will, will think, oh, God, I really want to get this thing in before it goes to the customers because otherwise I'll never get it in. This is a really important thing to do. And they may be motivated to work a little bit harder on that or stay late on that one feature. But it doesn't matter. It's not that there's a deadline and it's not that it's an arbitrary deadline. It's that, you know, at some point you have to pick a date because otherwise the developers will always find ways to polish this thing until it's, you know, glowing. It's basically gold plating every corner of the application, mm-hmm. which I think they have been doing actually for a while. It's pretty <laughs> darn good. Great. So, so you're doing this, and then you were mentioning some of the other ventures you have going. So there, there's uh, Fogbugs, there's uh, Copilot, and then uh, there's a job board that you launched. Is that is that like a big uh, revenue driver for you? Is that uh, a big piece of the company? It, it, it was, except that the job listings are down because of the current state of the economy, which we mm. I mentioned earlier. Going back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so not the most recession many proof. job listings. Uh, you're actually – yeah, right. It's not How about Copilot? Is that one being affected a lot by the uh, economy? No. We haven't we haven't seen much effect in either Copilot or Fogbugs. What we've seen is uh, in Fogbugs a slight reduction in the number of new customers. Uh, and actually, we only saw that for about three months. We saw that September, October, November. Sorry, October, November, December. So the last quarter mm. of '08, we saw a reduction in the number of new customers. Uh, it then recovered in January, um, which is weird. Um, but uh, the um, amount of revenues that we make at this point in Fogcrete's life cycle, the percentage of our revenues that are attributable to new customers is small. And so if the number of new customers goes down by 30%, that's only you know 10% or 8% of our total revenues. And uh, at our kind of profit margins, that's, that's not life-threatening. Hmm. Uh, so the job, but the job board, we're definitely seeing less, less, fewer listings. Um, what we're seeing is substantially less desperation to hire programmers out in the marketplace. Um, on the other hand, all good programmers still have jobs. And if they don't, jobs at Joel and Software, or jobs at fogreek.com, <laughs> email me your resume and we'll fix that. But uh, it, it, as was the case in the first dot-com crash, 
you know, there was kind of a lot of moaning and stuff like that. And a lot of secondary people with not as rare skills um, were definitely thrown out of work. But the great programmers always found jobs very quickly. And that's still the case. And then your fourth, uh, I guess your fourth venture is Stack Overflow. Mm -hmm. So stackoverflow.com is a, uh, basically a programmer Q&A website where programmers ask questions and get answers to it. And how did you come up with this idea? Uh, this is a classic example of noticing that something was broken in the world mm. and, that, and, and, that, and that a better solution didn't exist. It was really surprising to me um, that the Internet is such a classic rich, fertile environment where a programmer can do a very small amount of work and create something like Wikipedia that allows everybody in the world to contribute to making something massively awesome. And, uh, and especially since almost all knowledge about programming is on the internet, it is astonishing to me that it's impossible to find it. And so if you have a very specific programming question, I want to move two windows at the same time in the Windows API using C and Win32, and I don't want them to move one by one. I want them both to move at the same time. How do I do that? You have that specific question. Somebody else, 12 people in the world are going to have that specific question. You search for that specific question on the Internet, and it used to be that what you got was basically a lot of crap. You got pages and pages of crap. So the, so the first thing that you would get, which annoyed the hell out of me, was a website that had gathered Q&A uh, on these kinds of questions from users and then decided to start charging for it. And so they mm -hmm. put it behind a paywall. And so they make it look to Google as if there is an answer there. And you click on the link, and what you see is uh, uh, being told that you can get the answer if you pay money. Now, it turns out that this would violate Google's rules because Google will not search pay sites. And so it turns out that on this website, which I won't mention by name because they're so evil, that even though they're telling you you have to pay to get the answer, you can just scroll down to the bottom of the page past about <laughs> 14 pages of advertisements, and then you'll actually see the answer. To that one question, you won't be able to get anything else on the site. And so they have managed to, by the skin of their teeth, evade the Google rule against searching sites that are only for pay in a, in a clever, nasty, and sneaky way that tries to get you to pay when you don't have to. And to me, that's just fraud. If you tell people they have to pay to see the answer and they don't actually have to pay to see the answer, then, then that's fraud, and that pisses me off. So that's one kind of thing that you find a lot when you type these kinds of esoteric programming questions into the Internet. And uh, there's one site that does it particularly badly, um, but there are a bunch of other sites that also try to charge or get you to sign up or something mm. like that. Um, the other thing you'll find is discussion groups. That's the most common way of doing this where it's a, a bulletin board or BBS or Usenet or some kind of discussion group. The discussion groups don't work because you find a lot of wrong answers. A lot of people are providing the answer and they're wrong. Or they tell you to do something in a way that might be a security threat. It might be just completely, completely wrong. And then you see a lot of people saying, why don't you use the Macintosh? This isn't a problem if you would just use Macintosh. You get a lot of just garbage among, among, mm -hmm. amongst the answers. And you have no choice but to filter, filter it yourself and to try everything yourself and see which thing works. And then the, the next problem which happens is that uh, on the Google search results, Google is always going to take the old, the old result that's been on the Internet for three years and it's going to say that's established. And mm -hmm. it's going to give you those first. And so the new things, which may be more accurate now, are often not found. So a lot of times there's an old answer, which is you can't do that. And there's a new answer, which is download this plugin and your problem is solved. But you see the old answer comes up first in Google because so many people are linking to it and it's so established. And the new answer... Is, is nowhere to be found. So these are the classes of problems that we saw around programmer Q&A that, that I just sort of noticed, hey, I, it is shocking to me that nobody had done this better. It should be easy to do it better. How is it easy to do it better? Number one, you don't charge for it. It doesn't cost very much money to run a server. The, 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 the business model of pretending to not charge and then to, to charge and not really and whatever is not necessary. You don't need that particular revenue to make this thing work. Number two, uh, how do you... Um, uh, what about the answers that get old, that, that, that you know, like a new, a new product has come out or a new API is now available, which solves the problem in a different way? Well, that problem never, never happens on Wikipedia. Articles on Wikipedia never get out of date because there's an edit button and anybody can edit them. So you put mm -hmm. an edit button and anybody can edit the answers and anybody can edit the questions. And so the, the Q&A becomes much, much better because uh, you make it like a wiki. That was our second solution. Number three, you have to wade through all this crap with a bunch of people saying use a Macintosh and, and uh, giving wrong answers based on their, something they pulled out of their ass. And then you know, on page 14, there's somebody who's done a lot of research and they've carefully crafted an exact answer, but you don't see it because it's only on page 14. And so um, the answer to that, which we stole from Dig and Reddit, <laughs> is voting. Let people vote it up and vote it down. And it works. And indeed, uh, we added voting. We added that edit feature like Wikipedia and uh, Q&A system, 
Uh, and um, When you say you added it, did you uh, launch with it, or did you add that after you launched? Yep. No, we launched with all these features. We're all in versionofstackoverflow.com. We said, this will fix this, will fix this problem uh, of how to get an answer to a highly technical programming question on a very, very narrow topic. And, uh, and, and this, these things we thought would fix it. So uh, I got together with Jeff Atwood, who's looking for something interesting to do. Um, and we built this. Uh, mostly Jeff, uh, also a couple of programmers. So, like, how do you get together with him? You were chatting with him about this idea, or you guys were talking to him over Yeah, he together? just happened to call me up and say, hey, I'm, I'm doing my blog thing, and the blog is doing really well. I'm starting to make money with advertising on the blog. I'm thinking of quitting my day job. You're a blogger who I respect. Do you have any opinions? And this happened on the same day that I was trying to find a developer to build Stack Overflow, <laughs> which was not yet called Stack Overflow. Uh, we didn't have a name for it, but uh, you know, I was trying to find somebody uh, yeah. to implement that on that very same day. And I said, "Hey, why don't you do Stack Overflow with me?" So, uh, so that's what we did. Hmm. And so I couldn't have said that because we didn't have the name. <laughs> I don't know what I said, but I described to him yeah. uh, the vision, and he said, "Okay." And so now this seems like a, a fundamentally different way than you launch your other products, which is kind of your model before that you were very kind of religious about is you hire the great people, they come in, they figure out what to do. Um, that's Here a good point. I someone... pretty much ignored every single one of my rules uh, in building Stack Overflow. So is that conscious or did you realize afterwards and were like, oops? Uh, part of it was that I just didn't have much of a choice because I did not have the people to build it myself and did it. wanted to do it with Jeff and wanted to give him control over how it was done. And that meant that I didn't interfere in the day-to-day decisions about how it was done. And uh, we lucked out because he did a great job, and he had a couple of programmers helping him out, um, and a graphic designer helping him out, mm. and a database guy helping him out. They just did a fantastic job, and they built a beautiful, beautiful um, site. Uh, so um, uh, we, were, we were pretty lucky, and I think just actually we did throw talented people at the problem, and throwing talented mm. people at a problem will sort of overcome any kind of list of rules and regulations you might want to come up with about how to do something. And how did you structure it? Did you create a new corporation? That yeah, Stack Overflow is a, its own company. And did you put in any outside money, or you both put in money? How did you fund it? Uh, we both put in money, but it didn't take very much. Um, we got, um, you know, after after launching, after a couple of months, we started putting up ads, which cover our costs. Mm-hmm. Um, the The site is uh, growing at like a ridiculous rate. It's absolutely absurd um, watching it watching it grow. I think it's right now it's at six hundred thousand page views a day. Um, about um, okay. I don't. I don't want to say the number because I don't want to remember it. But um, six hundred thousand page views a day, cl- rapidly closing on three hundred thousand visits uh, a day, um, and that number is growing, is doubling every four months. Wow. So if you were making uh, a one dollar CPM, you'd make six hundred a day. Cool. I should write that down. One dollar <laughs> CPM. Uh, I'm not really sure how the. I'm, I'm not even sure how we're charging for the advertising right now. But uh, yeah, the advertising. The truth is that the advertising is a placeholder for a slightly different business model, which I'm not really ready to talk about yet. But um, uh, it is it is uh, breaking even on, on the advertising. Yeah. So so it's kind of interesting going back to like the product development. I was listening to our original show, and you know you were talking about how you were using kind of interns to launch things, and you were doing it kind of very organically, and you compared that to uh, what Paul Graham was doing with Y Combinator, which at the time was kind of too early to tell if it would work or not. Yeah. So still too early to tell if it works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so what's your you know, but what's your kind of lesson of this where you where you launch a pro you know, you launch products successfully and not successfully internally and then your first kind of experiment with just like, hey, find a few talented people and throw them at it um, is working so far. Like I said, it depends what you want to do. I think that we're gonna have two grand experiments here. There's the Fog Creek experiment, which is a bootstrap Ben and Jerry style company where we're trying to build a sustainable, long lasting company. Uh, that's a great place to work for developers. And that's our primary number one goal. And we're going to do things a certain way here. And Stack Overflow is the, the, the goal of that company is to solve a problem that programmers are having on the internet right now. And I feel like if I can solve that problem, then that company has accomplished its goal. And mm. I don't really care what happens after that. And so, uh, um, no, not that I don't care, but I mean, I want to solve <laughs> the problem for programmers on the internet. And I think we did, actually. And I think uh, what we're starting to see is most of these types of questions that you type into Google now, you'll get a result near the top, you know, above the fold from Stack Overflow. And programmers are starting to learn to click on the Stack Overflow links because those are the higher quality ones because of the, of the voting. So the top answer is the highest ranked one, uh, is more likely to be 
the right answer to your question because of the editing. Um, so if the question, if the original answer had a little bug in it, somebody could have gone in and fixed it. And so you'll mm -hmm. get higher and higher quality answers from Stack Overflow, and people will tend to skip over the other site. What's actually kind of interesting is that um, uh, oh, I can't really say this. I know something. I, I happen to have insider knowledge <laughs> about something that Google does in its algorithm, which in the long run will benefit us. Hmm. But I don't think it's public, public, publicly aware that, that Google does this. But let's just put it this way: Google. You know, a lot of times Google will put up. Well, they can't index like, podcasts, so you can say it right now. Uh, uh, they can and they do. <laughs> um, it is often the case that um, Google will have a particular formula that comes up with certain search results, mm. and we'll notice that people are clicking on number two a lot more than they're clicking on number one. And Google will take that into account over time. The fact that people will skip over a particular site in order to go to a site that's lower on the list. And uh, Google will, will, considers that to be very valuable information. Oh, I see. So like if I'm searching for a restaurant and I click on Yelp number three instead of click on city search number one. Yes. They'll, they'll notice that. If that happens as a statistically, in a statistically significant way, uh, Google will, uh, will, will, will take that into account. Yeah, so you're kind of building you're almost like it's like you're a brand name that benefits you in the search results, like mm -hmm. in terms of what someone clicks on. Right. And, and so what – Portion of the traffic there comes from uh, search, by the way. Eighty-six percent. Yeah, and that was their sense. design. the The user interface design for Stack Overflow went like this: You go to Google, <laughs> you type a programming question, you hit search, the results come up. You go to Stack Overflow, you read the results. That's that was our UI design. In other words, we yeah. built everything based on that, and that meant that our URLs had to be totally optimized for Google. It meant that we had really clear titles. That everything we did about the page was structured in a way that Google would find things and recognize things the way they were supposed to be. It's 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 almost beyond what they call SEO, search engine optimization, where the idea of search engine optimization is you take whatever crap site you were going to generate anyway, and you go polish it and make it so that a search engine is more likely to find it. We went beyond that. We knew a priori that 86% of our users would be typing questions into Google, and um, we, we wanted to have the best answers for them, and that's what Google wants too. Mm. And so that meant that we needed to have a URL scheme where the question is in the URL uh, and the question is in the title that we needed to use good, nice, structured markup and stuff in a way that, that would be very beneficial to somebody searching on Google because that's our user interface. Yeah, it's almost like you're the. Um, it's almost like you're a consumer packaged good company, and Google's a store where mm -hmm. you're going to make the M and M's and brand them. But the person goes into the deli, they see everything, and right. they we choose the M and M's because our, right. We have a secondary audience, the smaller audience of Stack Overflow is people that participate in the site regularly. The most of those are people answering the questions. Uh, they come in all the time. They answer questions. They sometimes they ask questions, um, and we give them bonus points and mm. stuff like that. And they get badges for answering lots of questions, and that's about it. And um, the uh, that uh, that secondary uh, uh, community is a substantially smaller community, but they're incredibly important to us, obviously, because they're the ones who are answering the questions and making this whole thing happen. Hmm. And we hope that those Google users will start to say, "Hey, this is the fourth time Stack Overflow has had an answer. What is this Stack Overflow thing?" And they'll go to the Stack Overflow homepage, and what they'll see there is a bunch of interesting questions. They'll see today's hot questions in all programming technologies, and they'll say, "Wait, I know the answer to that." And they'll go in <laughs> and they'll click on one and they'll answer it. And uh, then we'll say, hey, you did a pretty good job answering a Visual Basic 6.0 question. <laughs> Next mm -hmm. time I have a Visual 6.0 question that needs to be answered, I'm going to show it to you first because you might have mm -hmm. a good answer for it. And um, so, so we have that secondary. We, we, we have the larger community of people, just, just programmers, just typing questions into Google and uh, doing their job that way. And then we have the secondary community that is the Stack Overflow community. Hmm. So how do you – so let's kind of talk a little – bigger picture like how do you now with these four different projects plus now you have your uh, column in ink magazine yeah uh how do you spend your day how do you split your time i mean well let's for, see today i'm recording a podcast yeah and, and today you're taking an hour after this yeah 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 hopefully the best possible way you could be spending your time yeah, uh probably well <laughs> i don't know i didn't have dessert <laughs> but <laughs> pretty close yeah uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, how do I, I'm not really sure I know the answer to that. Hmm. I don't feel but, like I'm working that hard, so. <laughs> so you just kind of delegate it, work on what you want. Good life. Except do you delegate your writing too, or do you actually? No, uh, I can't, I can't, probably could not get away with that. Yeah, yeah. So you have to write, you sit here in the office. 
What it's I, worse when I write for Ink Magazine because I have to write four times as many jokes because my editor is going to cut out three quarters of them. <laughs> so then, what do you? Uh, what's kind of? Do you have any kind of big vision with where your company's going, or do you just kind of walk in every day and? We're going to have a big gigantic skyscraper in Midtown Manhattan, two hundred <laughs> stories with a helipad on the roof. Free lunch. Definitely. Still free lunch. Yeah. But so I mean, do you? <laughs> So, but do you have any plans for what'll be in that skyscraper? For what? What'll be in that skyscraper? A lot of programmers, <laughs> a lot of espresso machines, hmm. um, the helipad, on the, <laughs> the helipad on the roof. Yeah, how you'll commute to your uh, house in the Hamptons, exactly. right? Exactly. Hmm. But uh, but seriously, do you, do you have an? Uh, you know, are you? Do you kind of like have? Like it was interesting at lunch. I asked you how many people you had working here, and you. You said you think twenty four. Not quite sure. Right. Sorry. Like, sorry. We can look that up. We can look that up. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, but that know, but, but that's interesting, after. right? Like, is it, you know, because when you started, it was kind of like a nice thing where you know it's a small business, it's a lifestyle thing. Uh, you know, you knew everyone's name. It, at some point, it kind of is no longer a lifestyle business necessarily, or. It has a scale where well, just like you have to think two, about There's two different things. ways in which you're using lifestyle business. One way is quality of life. In other words, you enjoy work. You enjoy eating together with your colleagues. You like the people you're working with. You love coming into work every day. If yeah. you're away for a week, you can't wait to get back on Monday and talk to, talk to your, <laughs> your friends at the office. And uh, we've always been that and we always will. That is never going to go away. Um, the other way in which the phrase lifestyle business is used is the idea that it's like our whole goal here is to provide ourselves with a comfortable um, – standard of living is provide the owners with a comfortable standard of living so they don't have to work very hard. In other words, my lifestyle is golfing. And so I have, yeah, I have a, um, a chain of 14 uh, dry cleaning stores, but really I don't want to go into them. I don't want to spend any time there. I pretty much just want to go golfing because that's my lifestyle. So that's sort of a second sense of the, of the, of the term the lifestyle business. And it implies a lack of seriousness, I think, towards mm. the business. As long as the business is fulfilling its goal of providing enough income to the owners, then it's done. And uh, that's not the case at Fog Creek at all. Our goal is to continue to grow um, because our mission in life is to make a great place for programmers to work. And if we've only made a great place for 11 programmers to work, then we haven't really fulfilled our goal yet, have we? Mm. Um, that's one of the reasons why we got an in-house filmmaking crew and stuff like that and why we're always uh, why we're doing the movies and Joel and Software and Stack Overflow and we do the world tour, the, F- the Fogwoods mm. world tour, which we did. There will be a Stack Overflow world tour this fall where we'll teach a bunch of people about programming. Um, is that um, we're, we try to be an educational organization to evangelize how to make a great place for programmers to get great work done and what that means, not just getting them lots of M&Ms, but like how can they do good work as programmers? Mm. How can they ship on time uh, easily, comfortably? How can they create high-quality software that makes customers delighted? How can they keep the bugs to a minimum? How can they uh, work together with teams effectively? How can they use version control effectively? How can they use bug tracking effectively? All these questions that we need to sort of evangelize so that the programmers in the rest of the world don't have a miserable existence. One of the most important things about Fog Creek is the fact that a programmer somewhere in the world can read about how Fog Creek has private offices for programmers and go to their boss and say, I think I would be more productive in a private office. And then their boss says, it's impossible to make a living if we do that. It's impossible for a, for a software company to be profitable and give its programmers anything better than a little desk in a big room full of desks. And they can point to Fog Creek and they can say, what about Fog Creek? And their boss can say, oh, they probably have some terrific product. He's like, no, it's just like a dumb bug track. <laughs> they still give their programmers <laughs> private offices. And so we're the, we're the city on the hill, right? We're the beacon on the hill. We're the shining tower of like this is the place where everybody wants to work. And we prove that it can be done profitably even with a product that does not seem like such a – doesn't exactly sound like rocket science, right? Mm. It's, not, it's not like you can't get bug tracking anywhere else. You don't even have to have a competitive product. I mean like, like that nobody else has. You don't have to have a unique product. You just have to treat programmers well, hmm. and so um, that's our, that, that's our, that's our number. That's our ambition, and, and until the entire world um, treats programmers well, we're not done. That's a big uh, big project. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> they don't have to treat programmers well in sub-Saharan Africa, but the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, starting to starting. To I'm willing to give ambitious. up on a few programmers. <laughs> Anybody in Christchurch, New Zealand? Sorry, move to Wellington, but. Most of the world. Hmm. So, in terms of like how your um, how you kind of pick your priorities, do do you just kind of work with your team here? Do you have 
a board of advisors, you kind of do it in meetings, you... Yeah, it's all just like conversations around the hallways here with the people that are here. Hmm. Yeah. Are you pretty much, are you here most of the time or do you yep. get out a lot? So it's just kind of living within, living within the world here. I mean, I, I often, uh, you know, I mean, I go travel, I go to conferences, I go to speak places and stuff like that. But um, uh, yeah, mostly when I'm here, it, it, it'll just be like holiday conversations here, uh, conversations in my office, conversations at lunch, um, you know, emails back and forth, wiki pages. Um, there is, we don't have any kind of outside board of advisors or anything like that. Yeah. And how, how do you, how do you kind of manage everything now? Is it, uh, do you kind of have a chain of reporting or is everyone just kind of doing what they do? Uh, we have uh, a very shallow chain of command. There, there are people that are in charge of various departments um, who are basically there. And it's not a chain of reporting, like a, like a chain of command. Yeah. It's a chain. It's a basically, uh, at some point, the company grew to the point where Michael and I, as the co-founders, could not provide enough management help to people when they needed help from the manager. To mm. they needed to accomplish something, or there was a problem and they wanted to talk about, and we were just not available enough or, or accessible enough. And so we prov- we uh, added some sort of local managers. We have two dev leads now, each in charge of a team of developers, so that there's somebody you can go you can go talk to that's like you know right in your hallway, that's a developer, that's your your direct quote-unquote boss um, mm. but we really see the we, we always draw the org chart upside down so um, that that's the person that provides you immediate direct support and then if you need deeper support than that you can come to me or Michael hmm. and what's your what's kind of the biggest thing on your uh, plate right now what's you know if anything's keeping you up at night uh, there's all kinds of things uh, obviously Fogbug 7 about to go into beta is a huge thing um, for this year um, there's some major new features in Copilot uh, that are already starting to roll out um, that are pretty huge, but not that big on my plate, um, because the Copilot team works really well independently. There's um, uh, these uh, business and software conference, which we put on uh, every year, which is a joint venture between me and Neil Davidson from uh, uh, Redgate Software, which is an English software company. And the business and software conference, uh, this will be the third year, and we have um, just a, like a ridiculously good list. Um, of speakers, Don Norman, uh, Kathy Sierra. Uh, wow, I need to like look at the list to remember who all the speakers <laughs> are. But uh, when you look at the list of speakers at that conference, it's in November in uh, San Francisco. Um, you'll say, "Oh yeah," you'll, you'll read the first name. And you'll be like, "Yeah, that's somebody I would go to a conference to hear." And then you'll read the second name. And you'll say, "Yeah, I would go to a conference to hear that person mm-hmm. too." And you'll realize that every single name we have on that list is somebody that is worth going to a conference to hear. So it's a really awesome conference about the business of software. Um, which we do in uh, November, so check that out at businesssoftware.org. Um, that's another, that, that's, there's another thing coming up, the Stack Overflow World Tour is coming up in the fall. Uh, we're going to go to um, probably 20, 30 cities around the world and um, uh, basically talk about a whole bunch of different programming topics uh, that should be just interesting to programmers. Uh, very, very uh, diverse array of, of, of programming training, basically, uh, that will come to city, a city near you. Um, so I'm working uh, hard on that. I'm working on a, on a movie that's coming up, a documentary about how software is developed um, that we use as part of sort of spreading the word about how to do software development the right way. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some gigantic things. Stack Overflow, still working on that. Hmm. Uh, yeah. What do you think about the whole right way thing, though? Like, you know, given that you've seen it done two very different ways, do you think, do you think that's fair to say? No, I think there's one right way to develop software. The, the, there, there are um, there are two. The, the, the scene done two different ways is sort of two different approaches to. I want to start a business. How am I going to fund it? And uh, you know, where am I going to get the? Uh, but but in terms of like how should a team work in order to create software? There's I don't want to say there's one right way. I want to say that there's there's, there's rules there. We we figured this out. It is it is known how to develop software well. There are people that are not doing it because they haven't listened to the people that have figured it out and they're getting worse results. Sometimes they're lucky and sometimes they're not lucky. They're getting inconsistently inconsistent results. Um, but but, but if, if you do these things, you will probably develop better software than if you don't do these things. Hmm. Uh, and uh, it, it's something that has been known um, to Microsoft since the 80s and to the, indus- to the industry. It's like what's an example of something that's just, you know, unequivocally the right way to do it. Uh, that a lot of people a, miss. a database listing the bugs that you know that you need to fix. It's really the Joel test. There are 12 things in there. Um, that's one thing. And number two, 
um, before you hire a programmer, ask them to demonstrate that they can program by, by, by writing code for you on a whiteboard and right in front of you or in mm. an editor. Just show you that they can program. Seems kind of basic, but it's really not done. Yeah. Not that common. So this isn't whether or not you do kind of the Tom and Jerry approach or the um, or the Amazon.com approach. It's more just like these small tech or these yeah, important no, the but Ben small and Jerry's versus Amazon is like really a question of like do you start to, do you try to grow the company really, really fast or yeah. you bootstrap? And that's just an approach based on what kind of market you want to be in, what kind of company you want to build. That's a different story, and that's a business question. Yeah, yeah. What I'm talking about is what are the what are the what are the things that you need to do unequivocally to develop software uh, that's going to be uh, 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 successful? Do, do programmers have quiet working conditions? Is one of the things on my mm-hmm. list. Programmers need a private office um, or at least a, a cubicle that's very very quiet, and a lot of space. Nobody bo- nobody interrupts them, and nobody bothers them. But really, probably a private office with a door that closes, and this is something that uh, will result in better results. I, it's not mm-hmm. even controversial to me anymore um but it's very very rarely done so these are things that i sort of feel like i still have to evangelize um there's still a lot of uh you know there isn't um i think it's good but but programming unlike medicine doesn't have like a a set of schools that you have to go to and a degree that you have to get and some kind of certification that you have to have and some kind of a board that says you're, you're 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 still allowed to do brain surgery how hard is it getting the word out though i'm sure people you know you could argue that uh bloomberg doesn't have any offices whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, there. I'm sure there are lots of people who will always point out, you know, counterexamples of huge successes where they didn't follow these rules. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I don't know if Bloomberg. Bloomberg is more of an information company than a software company. They do software as well, and uh, um, I, 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 I'm not saying that there aren't counterexamples, and that's actually kind of interesting, which is that you could violate every single one of these rules and still luck out. The, the rules are there to give you the consistency, um, but I, I guarantee you, if you if you gave me, uh, let, let me go to Bloomberg, take some project that they're about to start, and give me two Bloomberg teams to do the same project, and one keeps doing it the Bloomberg way, and one comes over to Fog Creek Software, and I'll put them in offices, and they'll do it the Fog Creek way, then uh, I, I guarantee you, my team will have better results than, than the Bloomberg team. So just because they're succeeding as a business, because they have a monopoly on certain types of information, uh, and they've got certain business skills, doesn't necessarily mean that their software development skills are top-notch. Yeah, and they're pretty good at Bloomberg, actually. Yeah, probably, yeah. I don't know, from the people I know that work there, they're probably scoring like a 9 or a 10 or something on the Joel test out of 12. Uh, the quiet working, working conditions is one, one area where they don't have it. Hmm. Well, hopefully the programmers aren't screaming there. <laughs> <laughs> they, I think they do kind of scream pretty loudly there. It's sort of... Uh, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that much about what goes on inside in, inside Bloomberg. Um, uh, I think they probably do a pr- pretty decent job, and they have a monopoly over certain types of information. Mm. So, cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Before I let you go, uh, do you have any kind of parting thoughts out there for entrepreneurs trying to get started now? You know, aside from don't do licensed software. Uh, no, I don't want to say that. You, you might want to <laughs> do licensed software. Uh, let's see. Uh, don't do bug tracking. Come to the Business of Software Conference in November. Um, uh, check out stackoverflow.com. Buy Fogbugs. We have a student and startup edition of Fogbugs. Startups can get Fogbugs mm. for free. Um, look for that student and startup edition. And, um, yeah. Nothing like objective advice, right? <laughs> that is highly objective advice. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Sure. Thanks for having me. That's all for my interview with Joel Spolsky. Hope this inspires you to check in with your programmers, make sure they have nice enough digs to be doing good work for you. I'd like to thank my sponsor again, FreshBooks. Make sure you check them out. Use the code VENTURE. Use them to make sure that your clients pay you on time, something that all small businesses face. Be sure to keep the conversation going. You can go to VentureVoice.com. There, the best thing to do is to leave a comment. A lot of times our guests will come back, check, respond to you in the comments. I read all the comments, and a lot of the other users will too. You can also use a form on the site to contact me. I'd like to thank my associate producer, Eddie Leviton, for putting this show together. And until next time, I'm Greg Gallant with VentureVoice, entertaining entrepreneurship.